From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today I'm going to talk about some healthcare policies that have been in the news recently with someone who focuses on the ethics of these policies. With me in the HealthLink on Air studio is Rachel Faby, an assistant professor in bioethics and public health and preventive medicine at Upstate. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Well, you joined the Upstate faculty last summer with a specialization in the ethics of health policy, so it makes sense that you'd have a joint appointment in both bioethics and public health and preventive medicine. Can you explain what the ethics of health policy is and how you were drawn to this field? Yeah, so so bioethics writ large is the ethics of health and science. So frequently when people think about bioethics, they think of things like cloning or the ethics of informed consent in the in the clinical setting. I focus on the ethics of health policy more broadly. So rather than looking at clinical encounters, I look at things like Medicaid policy or um, how the state or federal government decides to give resources to different populations. Um, and I, as you mentioned, I focus specifically on um, non-citizens, so how immigrants uh, do or don't receive health care. And refugees. And, and re- refugees other. as a category of immigrants, yep. So you work at an academic medical center. Are there health policy ethicists working like in government? Or do they, I mean, where else do you, does this profession you know, have an influence. So you're right that at Upstate, there aren't a whole lot of people who work on the ethics of health policy. It's a a medical center. We have a lot of clinical ethicists, uh, some research ethicists, you know, research on human subjects, but it's not a big thing here. But yeah, there's, you know, there are other bioethics centers around the country that have people who work on health policy. Um, Johns Hopkins and Baylor come to mind as two that are sort of leading the way. But also, you know, the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, has a bioethics department. Um, and there you have people who work sort of across the spectrum of bioethics. It's, it's a really interesting place. And that's what they focus on entirely. I wouldn't say entirely. They work, there are people who work on research ethics. There, you know, all, all sorts of bioethics happens at NIH, but I think that that's you know, sort of one um, area where you can also find people working on policy issues. So your research focuses on access to healthcare for non-citizens, which includes undocumented immigrants, refugees, In this charged political climate, some people in government believe immigrants and refugees shouldn't be here, let alone, you know, needing health care. So how do you ensure that ethics is part of the discussion without taking sides? That's really hard. Um, You know, I I don't know that it's my job as a bioethicist not to take sides. That's sort of a debate in the bioethics community. You, You know, should we be engaged in advocacy or activism? And is that an appropriate role for an academic bioethicist, um, but you know, in my own work, I I do work on the access of healthcare specifically for undocumented immigrants. I think it's an interesting question whether their immigration status is relevant to whether they should get healthcare. Um, in bioethics, we might say morally relevant, um, and there are a number of moral and political theorists uh, out there who would argue that immigration status is morally irrelevant. And what matters is that people live in our communities. They're our neighbors, they're our friends, they're our coworkers, they go to church with us, those sorts of things. And that's what's morally relevant is those social connections. Um, So when we're giving out public resources to people, it should be on the basis of these important social connections rather than on, you know, sort of the arbitrary question of where you were born. I know that's not uh, an argument that's accepted by everyone, but that's sort of... um, I'm convinced by it. I find that to be a very convincing moral argument for how we should be 
giving out public goods. See, I think of ethics as the study of, um, I don't know, right and wrong, good and bad, you know, black and white, but you've got people on both sides of this issue, some that think, you know, America should help people in need and some that think America should just take care of its own. But so do ethicists, do they look for a middle ground or do they look to tell us which belief is right and which one is wrong? I mean, there are a number of, of schools of thought on that as well. In my own work, I'm a, an empirical bioethicist, which means I don't do a whole lot of theorizing. I do, I collect data and I use that data to inform my arguments, right? So I might interview someone about the experience of providing care to an undocumented immigrant under policy constraints that limit what they can provide to them, mm-hmm. um, which is actually what I did in my most recent project. I, I interviewed providers who see pregnant undocumented immigrants um, in different states that have different levels of generosity in their in their benefits that they provide to these women. And, you know, for a, a number of providers, what I heard again and again is, I am a nurse, I'm a doctor, it is my job to provide care to people who need it, and their immigration status doesn't matter because my professional calling is to help people. And when I encounter these policies that restrict what I can do for someone, you know, that tension is really distressing to me as a provider. I want to give the best care I can, and when this policy says, well, you can you can do an ultrasound and you can provide care to the baby, but you can't help with the mom's morning sickness because of, you know, policy restrictions, that's really hard for people who, you know, want to treat all of their patients the same. And that sort of comes back to that question of whether immigration status is morally relevant when we're providing health care. Let's talk about the public charge rule, because that's something else that you've spent some time looking into. Can you describe what that is? Sure. So the public charge rule is a uh, Department of Homeland Security policy. It's uh, it's DHS where um, when they're determining whether someone can become a a legal permanent resident, so someone who is an immigrant who does not yet have a green card, uh, currently when they're making that determination, they ask whether that person is likely to become a a public charge, which means primarily dependent on the government for subsistence. Um, And when they do that calculation as it is now, what they're looking at are things like, do you have you received cash benefits, so um, temporary assistance for needy families, and have you received um, long-term care at government expense? And those are the only two things they consider when they're making a public charge determination. And if you've received those things, they can determine that you're likely to become a public charge and deny you a green card. So um, that's sort of the backdrop against which this proposed change has, has come down from DHS. They're proposing to change what they consider when they're making this determination. So in addition to cash benefits and long-term care, they're going to look at what the, and these are legal immigrants. I should, I should mention these are not undocumented immigrants. We're talking about people who are here legally but do not have a green card yet. Um, now they're going to look at both you know, the, the cash assistance and the long-term care, but also potentially the use of Medicaid, the use of Medicare, the use of uh, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program or SNAP benefits, that's food stamps. Um, they're potentially going to look at whether uh, their children have used the children's health insurance program. So there are a bunch of new programs that people are eligible for. They're allowed to use these programs under U.S. policy. They're going to look at, maybe, if this rule becomes official, um, whether someone has used these programs in making that public charge determination and could potentially deny someone a green card if they've used those programs. Um, And the concern in the public health community 
is that if we um, if this rule becomes official right now, it's just in a in a proposed status. But if they finalize this rule, a number of people who are eligible for these programs are going to disenroll and they're going to stop getting Medicaid. They're going to stop using food stamps um, that they need to stay healthy and they, they need to keep their families fed. Uh, and that's going to really harm the public's health, not only because it's, you know, it's bad for the immigrants themselves to withdraw from these programs and no longer have access to these benefits, but also because if they become sicker and less productive, that's bad for everyone. Um, you know, illness is contagious and and um, a lack of economic productivity hurts everyone. And so you can you can make both arguments, right, that it's we should provide these benefits because people need them and that's the right thing to do. But you can also make these more practical arguments about it's it's also bad for citizens if people are withdrawing from these programs that they need. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Rachel Faby, an assistant professor in bioethics and public health and preventive medicine at Upstate. So I want to ask you about undocumented immigrants in a paper that you wrote with a colleague in the New England Journal of Medicine in November 2016. Um, you, you were writing about the proportion of undocumented immigrants in the U.S. who lacked health insurance. It was around 40% back then. Do you know what the number is today? I don't. Uh I haven't seen the most recent estimates on that, but if I had to guess, I would assume that there are probably more undocumented immigrants who are uninsured now than in 2016 um, because of this this phenomenon known in the literature as the chilling effect, um, which is where increased immigration enforcement causes people out of fear to sort of withdraw from public to, to try to protect themselves. So even people who are undocumented who previously had private insurance uh, might be dropping that coverage for fear that information about them could be used to to find them and, and then subsequently deport them. So I know you've done work um, dealing with refugees, asylum seekers. Can you explain sort of the different categories of people who want to come to this country? Yeah, so we have sort of a broader umbrella category of humanitarian immigrants, and that's people who are um, afraid to be in their country of origin uh, because of fear of persecution or violence uh, on the basis of race or religion or nationality or, or any of these things. So a refugee is someone who has left their country of origin. They're now in a second country and they want to come to a third country. So maybe they've left Syria, now they're in Lebanon and they'd like to come to the U.S. or they'd like to go to Germany. And the U.N. has granted them official refugee status because they've evaluated their claims and said, yes, you have a credible fear of being in your home country. Um, and so the U.S. each year sets the number of refugees that we'll be admitting, which means you know we'll we'll screen them. It's usually a two-year process to get through all of the levels of screening to become a refugee. Does it just go by number of refugees, or does it go by number from each country? Uh, it depends. So every year the number is set differently. Um, recently, there's been a shift in the way that number is determined. It used to be determined. Um, as sort of a, uh, a process between the State Department and the Refugee Resettlement Agencies in consultation with Congress um, under the current president, that that process has kind of changed. And now the Domestic Policy Council within the White House is determining how many refugees we should be admitting and kind of telling the State Department how many refugees we should be admitting. Um, and Congress is kind of expected to rubber stamp that rather than really consult. Uh, so we've seen the number of refugees admitted 
decline recently under President Obama. It was averaging 75, 80,000 people a year. In his last year, he actually tried to increase that to 110,000 people because of the Syrian refugee crisis. Um, and that was for, he initially set that number for 2017. Uh, he set it in October 2016. So then when President Trump came in, he took that number down by half. It went from 110,000 to about 50, 55,000. Uh, the following year, they set it to 40,000. And this year, they're proposing, I think, 30,000. So that, that number has declined by over uh, uh, by a significant margin in the last couple of years. Well, asylum seekers have been in the news lately. We've learned about children being separated from their parents at the border, which is obviously an emotional situation. Is there a role for health policy in what's happening at the borders? Yeah. So there's, um, you know, just to clarify quickly on the distinction between refugees and asylum seekers. So refugees are in that second country trying to get to a third. To be an asylum seeker, you have those same fears of persecution and violence, but you're at the U.S. border or you're already within the U.S. border and you're trying to seek the protection of the United States. So a lot of the women and children that we saw separated last summer were asylum seekers. They were running from gangs and violence in their home countries and trying to be protected in the U.S. Um, And I think there are a number of sort of health questions there. Um, A lot has been written about sort of the long-term mental health effects of separating children from their mothers, both on the children and on, on, you know, their parents. Um, So, you know, just in terms of good health policy, (laughs) separating families like that is is a terrible idea. Um, It also and this is a a more sort of clinical bioethics question, so not one that I typically work on, but something I've thought a lot about, is it puts the the providers, the clinicians who are in those um, detention facilities in in a really bad spot because, again, they have these professional norms of providing the best care and trying to maximize the health of their patients. So they they see how, you know, they're – the, the effect of these actions of separation, separating families, they can see the effects of that on their patients. And um, again, they're in that sort of distressing spot where, where there are requirements of policy that conflict with how they see their jobs. Well, thank you for being here to talk about these uh, issues. I appreciate knowing that you're here at Upstate and that you're looking into things like this. My guest has been Rachel Fabie. She's an Upstate Assistant Professor in Bioethics and Public Health and Preventive Medicine. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.